Welcome to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. If you're an entrepreneur and you're driven by your faith or want to be driven by your faith, then you're in the right place. This is a podcast brought to you by Faith Driven Entrepreneur. You can check us out at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. This podcast doesn't exist without you, our community. Please send us any questions, any thoughts you have about how this podcast might better serve you, and any thoughts about or questions on being a faith driven entrepreneur. short is I realized on a theological conviction that I was doing what I called the majority minority disparity. In other words, I was spending the majority of my time as a pastor, I mean, sadly, but true, equipping God's people for the slimmest minority of their life. My scorecard was really how well I did on Sunday, not how well my people did on Monday. And it hit me hard. I mean, over time, and I realized that, hey, I've got to change. Our culture's got to change. Our church's mission's got to change. Our scorecard's got to change. I really need to be about whole life discipleship. Welcome back, everyone, to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm Rusty. Hope you had a great week. Hey, today, we're going to take the show on the road. We're going to go to Kansas City, and we're going to connect with Tom Nelson. Tom's one of those visionary pastors of a multi-site church called Christ Community, and he's been widely recognized in the faith-driven entrepreneur community for his book, Work Matters, Connecting Sunday Worship to Monday Work. Imagine. He also serves on the board of the Gospel Coalition and is president of Made to Flourish, a network of pastors trying to establish what it looks like to be a Monday church. One of the things we love about Tom is that they're really drilling in on a replicable model of what it looks like for the average church in our country to affirm and encourage entrepreneurs. Henry William and I had the chance to glean some of Tom's experiences and the lessons he has for other entrepreneurs and other pastors as they are involved in their church. Join us. So Tom, Tom, I'd love for you to start us off with the podcast and talking about the book, Work Matters, and tell us your forgiveness story that's baked into that. You know, as business leaders and entrepreneurs, I know sometimes it can be really hard charging and blazing trails, and it's difficult to see where we've missed things and ask forgiveness. Uh, one of the things that I love most about the book and your story is just the humility that you bring into this. And can you just start off, and I, there's so many different places we want to take this conversation, but start off with the forgiveness story and tell us more about the book. Yeah, well, Henry and Tim, it's great to be with you, and thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, my story is I was a pastor for several years. I went to seminary. I do have a business background, but I went to seminary and started a church from ground up. So I've had a faith entrepreneurial journey. We started in our apartment about 30 years ago, which is a while ago. But about five years into my pastoral work, I really came to the realization that I'd missed something really important. And I called it, and I've written on this, called pastoral map practice. What I realized was that God had called me as a pastor to equip people for the majority of their life and not the minority. And yet my scorecard, what I thought about, I was much more concerned about how well I did on Sunday than my people did on Monday. And this came out of theological conviction. I mean, studying Genesis, I'm a Hebrew lover, the Torah, the reformers, I'm being, oh my goodness, I've missed this. So long story short is I realized out of theological conviction that I was doing what I called the majority-minority disparity. In other words, I was spending the majority of my time as a pastor, I mean, sadly, but true, equipping God's people for the slimmest minority of their life. My scorecard was really how well I did on Sunday, not how well my people did on Monday. And it hit me hard. I mean, over time, and I realized that, hey, I've got to change. Our culture's got to change. Our church's mission's got to change. Our scorecard's 
scorecard's got to change. I really need to be about whole life discipleship. So actually, I had talked to my elders and leaders. We were beginning to look at it theologically, but I actually stood before my congregation one day, and uh, you could have heard a pin drop. You can imagine when I said, I need to make a confession, right? Because tragically, often that's moral (laughs) propriety or financial malfeasance, right? It's like, so you could have heard a pin drop. And I paused and I said, I need to make a confession and I need your forgiveness. And I went on to explain that they had trusted me not only to teach them and to lead them theologically and pastorally, but to equip them. I mean, my role was to equip them, as I said, for the majority of their life. And because of inadequate theology, I had an inadequate pastoral paradigm that led to poor pastoral practices and an anemic culture and mission. I mean, we were doing a lot of good things. Don't get me wrong. We were a good church. They were really surprised. But they knew it came from a theological conviction and not a fad, not a church growth fad, not the latest thing. It was built around the text of how God had created us in his plan of redemption, so founded in work and the importance of work and calling. So anyway, all I have to say is that I did confess that, ask their forgiveness, that I'd failed them to equip them for the majority of their life, that in my own vocation, I wasn't doing what God ultimately called me to do. I was preaching sermons doing all that. So all I have to say is, yeah, I, I made a pretty big shift, and the congregation was gracious, and I was grateful that my wife and I started Christ Communities with just two of us. So we had a front row seat in this redemptive drama, and people trusted us because They knew we wanted to do what was right, but that made a major shift that has been a profound transformation in my life, our language, our culture, our mission, our priorities, and our church over 20-some years. So uh, I'm grateful God was gracious. My congregation was gracious. And the before and after picture is like night and day. I mean, like you think about, you know, weight ads, you know, you show someone who's struggling with weight, and then they find this diet, and then there's this perfect thin person. Well, the before and after is that dramatic at Christ Community, which is the remarkable church I serve in Kansas City. So it's been profoundly transformational. So tell us a bit about that. Tell us about some of the stories of transformation that came about. Tell us about some of the before and after. Yeah, well, before, I think, first of all, when we shift culture, language changes. So I had inherited and communicated a lot of language that was dichotomous. In other words, we would talk about full-time Christian ministry. We emphasize clearly those who are called in the 501c3 world, missionaries, pastors. We commissioned pastors, missionaries. We talked about all those kind of things, which are good things, and missions we support around the world. But we had a language that was unfaithful to the biblical text. We didn't have a seamless integral language. We had a dichotomous language, a bifurcated language. And it snuck up in lots of ways. You know, we talk about the eternal versus the temporal, the material versus the spiritual, the sacred versus the secular, full-time ministry. And that language begins to massively change because language conveys culture. And this language is problematic. So we shifted a lot of language. We became language police. We realized, what are we saying? You know, so the language changed. Our discipleship pathways changed, our preaching began to change, our pastoral prayers began to change. Not only did we connect Sunday to Monday, we can talk more about that, we brought Monday back into Sunday. So the gathered experience profoundly focused on the Monday scattering mission. Interesting. Tell me more. So go one layer deeper on that, because that's fascinating to me, and I feel like it's something that I hear a lot about, but I'm not sure I've ever heard a practical application of that. You know, how did that actually happen. Right, it did. I mean, there was not only language, we began to preach different, teach different, pray different. Let me give you some examples. One of the biggest shifts, this is 20 years ago, 
I mean, when I started as a pastor or finishing seminary, I never imagined that a vital part of my pastoral praxis was workplace visits. Actually going to my parishioner's place of work, assuming the role not only of a shepherd, but a sheep, of being a learner, not just a teacher, of understanding people's worlds and connecting at that level. When I started Christ Community 30 years ago, I would have never imagined workplace visits were as important as a hospital visit. I mean, I still do hospital visits. That's part of being a shepherd. But in our culture, my mission, our congregation, many churches now around the country, workplace visits are a vital part of pastoring. That it's profoundly transformational. So not only do pastors do differently things during their week, and we want to get another example, is that Sunday changes. One classic example, and this is happening increasingly around the country through Made to Flourish and other organizations, is we celebrate uh, Monday callings on Sunday as a part of our liturgy. So one of the things that we begin to do is to have a thing called This Time Tomorrow. It's just a brilliant liturgy. And it's woven into our, let's say we do singing, preaching, any service, not every Sunday, but probably once a month, where a clergy person or a pastor invites a congregant member or parishioner, depending on your tradition, up front. And depending on your ecclesial format, there's an interview. And the clergy person asks the questions. Okay, so the congregant can be a stay-at-home spouse, a retiree, a student, a CEO, a plumber, all the different kinds of callings, and they ask three questions. It's the most amazing thing on a Sunday morning because it celebrates our mission. People love this, and it distinguishes our church. Right away, when someone's new, they this church really knows my world. So the three questions are simply, the first question the clergy person asks the parishioner or congregational member is, Tell us what God has called you to do this time tomorrow, right? This is probably a Sunday. It's going to be Monday at 11 or something. And they'll talk a little about their world. Second question is, what are the joys and challenges of being a follower of Jesus where God has called you? And they talk about that. And the third question is, how can we pray for you? So the clergy person then prays for that person. But as they do, they raise their hand and and commission them. And often they'll commission other people in the congregation to stand who are in that same calling. But it is a profound liturgy that begins to bring Monday into Sunday. So I'm just giving you a couple of examples that are really central and practical down-to-earth transformation of a church that truly is a church for Monday and not for Sunday. That's great. And one of the things that you mentioned as well is commissioning and how you've been commissioning, quote-unquote, full-time ministry people for a long time. How have you started doing that in your church with different professions potentially, or just have you thought through that with sort of commissioning and realizing, I know this was hard for me. You know, I heard a mentor one time say something similar, you know, Hey, I sat in the pews for 30 years. How would I not think those jobs are more important than what I do? I never saw one of me on stage. I never saw me say anything about how God was moving in my life or my work. And so I've been on this topic for a while and fascinated by it and seen a few churches start to move towards that, which is, you know, Hey, it's accounting season. Let's have all the accountants stand up. And right. I, I don't know if that's how you do right. it or something totally different, but love to hear how that works. Yeah, and how often are you doing it? Are you doing it yeah. once a month? Yeah, well, you know, again, we've been involved with this transformation for quite a while, and churches are at different stages of their development. But yeah, I, mean, I think we started with, let's say 20 years ago, we started with Labor Day, you know, things that were natural connecting points to celebrate the important callings and priesthood of every believer and the Monday worlds they were in. So yeah, we start with Labor Day. You know, it's a natural time to do a message and talk about work and do some kind of commissioning for work. That's where we started. Then we went to like seasonal things. Like you're at April 15th, you might mention your pastoral prayer for tax accountants, right? Or have them commissioned. 
But like in the fall, often we would do teachers because the school year launches. But we do that a little bit now. But but this time tomorrow, let's say on once a month, twice a month, covers that beautifully. I mean, we consistently not only hear about people's worlds, we pray for them and we commission them in that this time tomorrow segment. So at Christ Community and some other churches are doing that, that is both an understanding, a prayer, but also a commissioning for their vocation. Does that make sense? So we will cover retirees, we'll cover students, stay-at-home spouses, CEOs, plumbers. We do that intentionally across the vocational spectrum, paid and non-paid work. That's great. So how did you get yourself and your pastoral staff ready and confident? Because we have lots of pastors that listen to the podcast. And there's this, I think one of the reasons that they listen to our podcast is because they're trying to become more well-versed in the language of entrepreneurs, the language of business. But you must have been very intentional about that. Can you walk us through those steps? Yeah, I can walk you through some. First of all, I would just say, you know, as a pastor, I think all of us, if we're followers of Jesus or we're seeking that, the Holy Scriptures matter from Genesis to the maps. And so a rich biblical theology is what animates this transformation. When I begin to look more carefully at the biblical text and how central work is from Genesis to creation, that's where I did a message series on Work Matters. My first book on this topic came out. It was really driven by the importance of work in the theological story of the Bible. So I'm saying for staff and leaders, really the depth and foundation was to relook at the biblical story and how central work is in creation, redemption, and ultimately consummation. It wasn't, you know, a tributary of thought. It wasn't an add-on. It wasn't a new program. It was a deep theological conviction that the gospel profoundly speaks into every nook and cranny of life. And I frame that because I am a theologian. I love biblical texts. I love Hebrew. I love exegesis. I mean, this is my love, but I'm just saying then to connect that with people's worlds requires not only a rich theology, but then translating it and understanding. I think the next step would be, apart from having a sense of this is a priority in the biblical story, right? To really have a theological conviction. Then I realized as a pastor, I need to put on a learner's hat. I need to learn from my people as a fellow sheep, not just a shepherd, about their worlds. So, I mean, I have a business background, but I began to read widely more and journals. I began to ask questions in my workplace. I began to understand more of my people's worlds. And that impacted my prayer and it impacted my vocabulary. I became a learner. I became more curious in different disciplines. So I'm not an expert, let's say, in people's worlds, but often I'm conversant. Does that make sense? I'm conversant because I do my homework. I listen. I learn. I read in many different areas of disciplines. And that allows me to interface with them, respect them in their world, not be an expert, but then take theology to that world. So practically, as you're a pastor listening to this, and hopefully this is one of those episodes that our listeners listen to and say, this is something I absolutely have to recommend to my pastor. And when you talk about being conversant and that yeah. language is super important, yes. what do you do? What is it that you read? How do you educate yourself when you don't have that five years of business experiences you have? It's a completely new world. What are some practical things that a listener, a pastor might go ahead and do tomorrow? So there, this okay, time great. tomorrow on a Sunday yeah. is, it's Monday, it's I'm at lunch. Who am I having lunch with? Yeah, so I would say a couple things is begin to do asset mapping for the individuals in your congregation. We often in churches, we look at our communities, what are the resources, right, that are there? How can the church impact it? 
that each individual you shepherd and encourage has an amazing story and they have a place of influence and they have an incredible contribution. So I'm just saying, first of all, I think the biggest thing is to become curious, become a learner, become hungry to learn from your congregation. And you know what I will do? I mean, obviously I read the Wall Street Journal, things like that. That's a regular diet for me as I read the biblical text. But if I know I'm going to go to meet with someone or want to learn about their world, I will ask them a good book or an article I could read in their world, right? I mean, you know, someone who has a specific area of expertise, medical or whatever, I will want to know a little bit about that. So, I mean, it's just taking the initiative. It's being curious, it's learning, and it helps you be more conversant in that world. Plus, you're validating them. When you say, give me a yeah, book or an article to read, yeah. they're, they're taking it seriously. This isn't about the pastor taking them out to lunch because he didn't talk about a capital campaign. Exactly. That is the last thing I talk about. I mean, there's a place Save for that. Save that for dessert, at least, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So we spend a lot of time, obviously, with entrepreneurs. As you think right. about some of these people that you've gone to lunch with, how many of them are entrepreneurs? I'd love to just kind of know at a highest level how many entrepreneurs you run into at your church. But then secondarily, if you could share some stories of some from your church and how maybe their life's been changed through the way your church has changed, the way that they are viewing Sunday and Monday. Right. Well, I think, again, you know, we're very much in process. So I always want to say that. And we've been working on this for 20 years, and we have many more years to learn as a congregation. A couple of things stand out to me. One is the regular diet. I mean, we don't have a center for faith and work at Christ Community. It is woven into our culture theologically, missionally, from cradle to grave, okay, from all that we do in discipleship. So my point is, in our preaching, teaching, and our thinking, entrepreneurship makes sense, right, for several reasons. One is, is that we serve a great God who can multiply loaves and fishes, right? We have a sense of faith and how we see reality. We have a sense of seeing a need and trying to meet it, a willingness to take risks. This is our story as followers of Jesus and our entrepreneurial God. And we would tell that God is an entrepreneur. He brings risk into the system, if we may say that. So I'm just saying, theologically, that story, that rich diet frames and validates entrepreneurialism from an entrepreneurial God on and the biblical story. So the idea of entrepreneurship is not extra. It fits into our faith vision of the world and how we see reality as God sees it. So I just want to frame that. And then out of that, our church attracts entrepreneurs because we speak that language. We validate entrepreneurs. Those who are sitting in the congregation understand the importance of capacity building, of creativity. All that is encouraged. So, you know, you're a, a retiree and have a lot of energy after you're, you're saying, oh, what is my next entrepreneurial endeavor? I'm not done. So I'm just saying culturally, we also stoke it, you know, with good articles. We do conferences and we highlight entrepreneurs on stage, right? So, I mean, we're building that out. But I would say a couple of things, just a couple of examples. It is a culture. It's driven by theology. It's driven by culture. It's what you celebrate. And we are just, after 20 years, beginning to see much of the fruit of this culture in the local church. So I'm just saying we're working on that. Recently, we have a wonderful young couple in our congregation, Jeremy and Tracy Foster. And Tracy, stay-at-home spouse in this stage of her life, has seen the need to address screen time and the adverse effects of technology. So she and a handful of people, two or three other people, have started an organization called Start. Okay? No one told her to do this. She sees a need. She's concerned about screen time. She knows a lot of the Sherry Turkles and others who are writing about the danger of this. And so she starts this group, Stand Up and Rethink Technology. 
And she's doing an amazing work. Like Diane Sawyer just interviewed her, I think, the other night on TV. But it's a small little group of people in a church in Kansas City who are thinking entrepreneurially about technology. Okay. So she has the sense of that in people around us, the people in the church. She's got a couple more on her board that are part of the church. We think that way and we celebrate that. A few years ago, another two young guys started a company called Crema. And they were young guys in downtown Kansas City. But they tied into the Kauffman Foundation. Those who are entrepreneurs know the Kauffman Foundation is a major foundation in this area here in Kansas City. So we're in an entrepreneurial zone here. And they helped start what is called the Million Cups Movement. Two guys in our church, in our downtown campus, young guys starting out in a tech place that have helped facilitate the connecting of venture capital and ideas here in Kansas City. And it was multiplied around the country called the Million Cups. So those are just a couple of examples. That's really great, Tom. Can you take us through a little bit of the evolution? You know, you, you started with Work Matters. You then moved right. to the economics of neighborly love. You talk about being made to flourish. Take us through that evolution and how you keep it all woven back to this idea of work in the church. Right. Well, yeah, and I, I'm grateful for that question because it is a growing learning process. You know, I'm in process and I'm with lots of great people and we're trying to be fruitful and faithful. So yes, I have made some adjustments. So when I began to think more deeply about work theologically and missionally and practically and discipleship, my primary framework was helping individuals understand the importance of their work before God, right? Before others. So I had a more of a me focus. So if you read Work Matters, I tried to make it very accessible, like for a college student's but it was more framing the biblical story of why my work matters, right? And then that extruded me into a national conversation. I work quite a bit with the academy side of seminaries. And I also got involved with some economists. And a long story short is that in my learning with these economists and theologians, I was the lone pastor in this conversation. And we began to realize that most of the faith and work conversation, particularly with pastors, was primarily on the individual fulfilling their calling, right? It was very me-focused. And long story short, we began to realize as a team, theologians, economists, and myself, like, hey, we have got to make the bridge, not just from me, but the biblical stories about we. Not just my work matters, our work matters, which is really dealing with the economy, right? How we bring value to one another. So I was asked in conversation, Tom, we have got to find a scholarly kind of pastor who can make it accessible, who will take good modern economic theory, but go from scripture to modern economics and make the case from scripture first, why we need to care so much about economic flourishing, local and global. So that's where I spent some time and University Press just published last year, the work called The Economics and Neighborhood Love. It helps people understand from scripture the importance of connecting not only my work, but our work. So we're trying to build a case of why economics matters from a biblical standpoint, and yet be responsible to modern economic theory. So that was the bridge building, and I built it around Luke 10. So I'll wrap it up here. But the thesis of the book, and there's a lot of other theological backgrounds in the Old Testament, fruitfulness and all this that builds the bridge to economic flourishing. But the basic idea that is so compelling is around Jesus teaching in Luke 10. And I'm not going to give all the details here. Basically, the thesis is, is that Jesus teaches us that neighborly love involves both compassion and capacity. In other words, 
as humans, when we have compassion without capacity, right, we have frustration because we were created to be generous and to love others. On the other side, if we have capacity, but we don't have compassion, we have alienation. Think of the rich fool, right? He has all this stuff, but he's alienated from God and his community. But if we bring compassion of Christ and capacity together, economic capacity, we have neighborly love. We have human transformation. So I'm trying to make the case that neighborly love matters and it involves both the compassion of Christ to see the other as family, but also the capacity and tangible ways to love them, which deals with economic flourishing. That's great. Thomas, I listen to this. Another initiative we have is faith-driven investing. And we have a one-day event that Ben McLean is providing leadership for. And yeah. when you look at scripture and its impact on and what it says about economics, presumably in your study of that, you also looked at what scripture had to say about not just economics, but investing and providing capital and opportunity in the field of economics. Yeah. You know, we as Christ followers have been trusted with assets and we've come to understand that God owns it all. And to right. the extent that we really internalize the gift of grace and we realize that God owns it all and we want to give it back as our main form of worship, that also impacts our investing pocket as well. What does it mean for you as you unpack scripture through the lens of economics? What does it look like for you as you counsel investors in your congregation about how to deploy their investment assets, whether it's angel investing, investing in the community, investing in stocks and bonds? Do you see any scripture that guides you in those conversations? Well, it's a great question. I would be a little bit reluctant to be too granular because that's not my area of expertise. I mean, that's your expertise. But here's what I do have conversations around. I mean, in terms of those conversations, I will go to Matthew 25, which is a major text that Jesus teaches about the parable of the talents, for example, major teaching, right? And what's the challenge with that? And we, I think most of us who have a background understand that Jesus in the context of the future, I mean, this is eschatology or the future kingdom coming in full. What's going to be future like? He uses the example of three portfolio managers, right? Money managers. And again, Jesus was an economist. He was working in the workplace. The vast majority of his parables were in the workplace. I mean, Jesus was a brilliant economist. So again, that's not incidental or accidental as teaching. So he takes in the first century economy, which is different than today, but it was somewhat zero sum in perspective. But he takes these three money managers and you know the story. Well, often people talk about the faithfulness, right? Uh, You've been faithful much, therefore I'll give you more. And faithfulness is an important category. But here's the challenge with that. If we divorce faithfulness from fruitfulness, we have an impoverished understanding of faithfulness. So, for example, I will talk much more about a theology of fruitfulness. And Jesus, when he grabs his disciples the night before his crucifixion in John 15, says, by this is my father glorified. Can you imagine? I mean, this is the bottom line, that you bear much what? Fruit. Fruit. Right? That you may prove to be my disciples. So much fruit. What did Jesus have in mind? So if we understand the whole canon, the whole flow of scripture, yes, fruitfulness is intimacy with Jesus. Of course, that's abiding. That's right there. Fruitfulness is the character of Christ. Sure, it's coming, people coming to Christ. But to understand the broader framework, Jesus is also understanding that fruitfulness is a vital part of faithfulness, and that involves our productivity, and that would tie again to the fruitfulness of our investing. Yeah. So I'm just saying I want to broaden the imagination for the investor that we are to bear much fruit. And when an investor invests wisely and multiplies that investment in any dimension, right, of value, then they are being fruitful 
and they are representing being Jesus' disciple. If that makes sense, I can go to details, but I'm not the expert in detail implementation, but I can give a framework of why that investment matters. But if you are faithful, you are also fruitful. Right? Well, you're introducing the framework that there should be a framework. If God is telling yeah. us yeah. You know, we have an opportunity to be fruitful, and that is very much tied in the Matthew 25 story, then it probably behooves us to have some sort of a theology or a framework to begin with. Now, what he doesn't say in that passage is where they invested it, what they did exactly. Exactly. Money. exactly. So, and there seems to be freedom yeah. there, right? Yeah. And wisdom needed. Yeah. So what I'd like to do with the time that we have, I have one more question that I want to feature in the first podcast episode. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about Made to Flourish. You are an entrepreneur. You're presiding over an entrepreneurial startup. What is it? Well, Made to Flourish came out of seeing this compelling need. There are a lot of conversations across the nation about faith and work. But David Miller has said, he's the best historian of the faith and work movement, that up until made to flourish conception and launch, think of this, a thousand organizations, most of them are mom and pops, right? Nothing against that, are dedicated in some area to try to help people connect Christian faith with their work context. Okay, this is not new. But in David Miller's research, imagine this, in 40 years of the faith and work movement, it's at least 40 years old. There is not one organization focused on the local church and the pastor's role in the change agent in this. Most of these organizations go around the church, and there are reasons why. So May the Flourish was birthed to primarily focus on pastors in the church. We're not only about pastors. We're pastors first. But there's an incredible opportunity to help pastors out of theological conviction, help them connect Sunday to Monday. I mean, our mission— from the very beginning, is to build this network across the country where we bring together ideas, practices, and relationships. We're boots on the ground. We're not just a think tank. Ideas matter. Practices matter, but relationships matter. So our goal is to help pastors and their congregations integrate faith, work, and economic wisdom for the flourishing of their communities. So we are deeply committed to a pastor's fullness and the important leadership role pastors play And we believe, I'm just saying, we believe God's kingdom is broader than the church, of course. But we believe that the local church is at the heart of it and that that's God's plan A. Local church can be frustrating, be difficult, but from our standpoint, the local church really matters and pastors matter. And so that's what we're committed to is to really help pastors be spiritually whole and grow, connect together around the nation, but deeply invest in equipping people for the majority of their life. It's really whole life discipleship. Nothing new, but a lot of it's not taking place. So we're pretty jazzed about it. We're almost four years old. We're trusting God to have an impact across the country, and we have a growing network, and but a long ways to go. So that's our hope, is we can put a dent in it and make a big difference across the church and kingdom across our country. org for our listeners. And there's so many great resources, so many great blogs and articles and all kinds of things, as well as all your city mm-hmm. leads are listed there as well. If there's pastors yes. listening that want to yes. plug into someone or talk to someone. So definitely encourage yeah. you to check that out. And Tom, as we come to a somewhat of a close here on what we hope is the first of multiple podcasts with you, we always like to bring it back to God's word. And you've done that a lot in this session here, but just, is there some part of scripture, maybe it could be this week, it could be today, it could be over the last few months that you feel God's calling you to, where he's revealing himself in new ways and maybe to offer some encouragement 
some of the entrepreneurs out there. Yeah, I love that opportunity. So here's where I sit. I have a split role. So I serve a wonderful congregation that's 30 years old that continues to be entrepreneurial and grow in Kansas City and also serve as the president of Made to Flourish. So I have a split role. And at Made to Flourish, we're almost four years old. And you know, entrepreneurship, three to four years, there's a lot on the line. You know, we're really encouraged, but there's a lot going on. So I would just say a text that's really important to me today. I mean, it's always been important to me, but if people think of praying for me and the work we're doing, I'd love that. In any entrepreneur, there's fragility, there's lots of intensity, there's challenges, it's very taxing, it's joyful. But bottom line is Genesis 17, 1 and 2. So God says to Abram, you know, he's 86 years old, Isaac's born, he says, I am the Lord God Almighty, walk before me and be whole. And then he says, from that, I will bless you, I will give you a new name and so forth. I'll be make you fruitful, but that's where I am, okay? God's initiative, it's all about God ultimately. God reveals himself to Abram. And that's part of his entrepreneurial endeavor, right, of faith. But he says two things, walk before me and be whole. And the Hebrew text, walk before me, literally means to walk in my face. It's a picture of intimacy that was lost in the garden that is found in the cross and the yoke of Jesus, right? So in my heart today, and I have challenge with that because I work hard, is to be intimate with Jesus first. And then right on the heels of that is this brilliant Hebrew word, tom tamim, which is be whole, be integral. So my prayer is that, in the midst of what I'm doing and all the listeners and you guys, that as we do the work God's called us to do, that first and foremost, we cultivate intimacy with him. And then out of that, we'd have an integral life. And out of that, we'd have influence. So that's where I would just frame my conversation. It's really important to me today. Today's full, challenging. And I just need to take a breath, like many times all of us do, in the midst of our duties and say, Lord, you've revealed yourself to me. I'm walking with you. You know, draw me close to yourself. So walk before me and be whole. Tom, that's awesome. You've blessed our listening audience. You've definitely blessed me. If nothing else happens, if nobody else listens to this, you've changed the way that I think about my work, and I'm really grateful. So thank you. Amen. Thank you, guys. Great to be with you. Thanks, Tom. You too, Tom. Yes. Thank you, Tom. All the best. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining us for today's show. We are very grateful for the opportunity to serve the larger faith-driven entrepreneur community. We derive great joy from interacting with many of you, and it has been extraordinarily rewarding to see people come into the site and the podcast now from more than 100 countries. That's right, 100. It's very important to us, of course, to make sure that we hear from you. So our hope is that you'll feel as if this is your show and that you'll help make it something that best equips you for your entrepreneurial journey, one that you're proud of and you want to share with others. To do that, please visit faithdrivenentrepreneur.org backslash survey and share with us your feedback. You know, this podcast, it wouldn't be possible without the help from many of our friends. Executive producer Justin Foreman. Program directors Nicole Dickens and Adora Jones. Music by Carl Cadwell, and you can hear more of his work at summerdregs.com. Audio and editing by Richard Barley of Cornerstone Church in San Francisco. 